This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. We do the science of society in the School of Social Sciences. Today, we're going to be talking with a UC legend, a social scientist, who had done a lot and made huge impact on both science and on society. I met Dick for the first time after I became faculty. This would have been around 1983. I don't remember the event, but it was the meeting and Chancellor Atkinson was there. And I remember thinking, this is amazing. It's tremendous to be in the presence of, of, of such a legend. And now, some 40 years later, I'm still awestruck. It's a pleasure to be here with you today and to have Dick speaking with us. Richard C. Atkinson. Dick Atkinson needs very little introduction with this crowd. We're here in the Atkinson Pavilion. And just across campus, there's another building with Dick's name on it, Atkinson Hall. There's even, and you may not know this, there is a mountain in Antarctica that's named after him. (laughs) He needs very little introduction, but we're going to do it. We'll introduce him anyway. He is President Emeritus of the University of California system. He served at the helm of the University of California for eight years during an important and tumultuous time after the state banned racial preferences in admission, he helped UC to enroll a more diverse student body. And he famously challenged the requirement for the SAT for admission to colleges and universities. And we know, we know the, long, the long effect of that. He's the former chancellor at the UC San Diego, where he presided over a steady rise in research and distinction and he also worked to link it better with the city of San Diego. He's the former director of the National Science Foundation. One of his achievements while he was there to negotiate the first MOU, Memorandum of Understanding, between China and the United States for the exchange of scientists. Did you know that? And he's still, to this day, Professor Emeritus of psychology and cognitive science in our own school of social sciences. This afternoon, it's been a long time in the making, and I can't wait for it to start. So let me just quickly call up here Associate Dean Ben Bergen. Ben is on the faculty of the cognitive science department. He's going to say a few words about Dick's impact on the field of cognitive science and psychology. Ben? Thank you, Dean Padden. Welcome back, uh, President Emeritus, Chancellor Emeritus, Professor Emeritus Atkinson. Happy second day of summer, friends, colleagues. In the 1960s, uh, then-Professor Atkinson developed a theory of memory, or rather a framework for theories of memory, which came to be known as the Atkinson-Schifrin model or the modal model of memory. It's best known from a 1968 chapter, which I definitely recommend that you read, even though it's 106 pages long. 
Um, and in that chapter, you can see fully articulated a framework for understanding human memory that has remained influential for the last 55 years in the field. The basic contours you're familiar with. Uh, there are three stores. There is a, uh, a sensory store, a short-term memory store, also known as working memory. There's a long-term memory store. And humans use control processes to store information, rehearse, search for, or retrieve information from these stores. So if you've taken an intro psych class, or if you've taught one, as many people in the room have, um, this will all sound very familiar. Because nearly all theories of memory incorporate something like this framework. Uh, but that's not really what's so influential about the modal model. It foresaw, even in 1968, um, and drove important developments in the field. So for example, the idea that there might not just be one short-term memory store, but multiple short-term memory stores for different modalities, for hearing and vision and so on. Um, or that a lot of the action wasn't necessarily in the stores per se, but in the control processes that accessed and used those stores. Atkinson's work coming early in the cognitive revolution uh, also demonstrated the importance of using computational models and insights from what computers looked like at the time to hypothesize and drive theories and, and, uh, and model building when we're thinking about mental mechanisms. And that view has become almost universally held within psychology and cognitive science today. And of course, because memory is so important throughout the human experience, uh, Atkinson's theories and the findings that have been driven by, by his work have also shaped adjacent fields like psychiatry and education and artificial intelligence. So as a field, we owe a sizable debt, even more, more so here at UC San Diego, where, of course, he was chancellor. And during that time, not only was he a member of the psychology department, but also he was a strong champion of the, at the time, absurd idea that we should found the first ever international uh, department of Cognitive Science, which is my home department. And that's a department that now has 30 faculty and over 2,000 undergraduates, many of whom work on memory. So that's enough preamble. I'm sure you're as excited as I am to start to encode some long-term memories. <laughs> President Atkinson. I have to thank Ben for that very elegant introduction. Let me say, Carol, that I'm really pleased to be here. Uh, Carol, when she asked me to talk, was back in 2020. She asked, would I come and talk about the theory of memory? Absolutely not about my time as uh, chancellor or president. Uh, uh, I remember Carol arriving on the campus. It was a great recruitment for the university, and she's turned out not only to be an outstanding faculty member, but I think the social sciences have prospered under her leadership. Uh, before I get to the theory, I'd like to just give you a brief background of what my, about my scientific career, and in a sense that'll be a suggestion about what the history of the social sciences were like in an earlier period. I uh, I'm going to start with my entry as a college student at the University of Chicago in the summer of 1944. Uh, literally, I arrived on campus as the Allies were invading Europe. Uh, Chicago was a remarkable university as a science university in those days as it is today. 
And in my years at the University of Chicago, I was very much influenced by a man named Nicholas Ryshevsky. He was a physicist by training, uh, barely escaped from Russia during the revolution. And by the time I arrived at Chicago, he was the chairman of what was called the Committee on Mathematical Biology. And that was a PhD program at the University of Chicago. The idea was that biology, psychology, and sociology would follow the path of physics, and that path would be the development of mathematical theories. Uh, what I did for him was computations on a desk calculator long before the days of computers and the like, and it was on the model of neural networks, his notion of how to describe uh, mental processes. And uh, the equations I worked on were second-order difference equations. If any of you are familiar with them, you know that they're very orderly under some conditions and very chaotic on other conditions. And those equations have been part of my life and all of the work I've done. Uh, orderly on times, chaotic in others. Uh, so when I finished as an undergraduate, I planned to go on and do my PhD in the Committee on Mathematical Biology. But about that time, I met a young man, William Estes, who was a young uh, professor at Indiana University. He'd been a student of B.F. Skinner, one of the famous psychologists of that period. And B.F. Skinner's work was on animal learning and... Uh, I was just stunned because what Bill Estes was working on at the time was the formulation of mathematical models to describe the phenomena that were Skinnerian, uh, operant conditioning, and Pavlovian conditioning. And it wasn't the phenomena that stunt, stuck me as so amazing. It was the fact that these were probabilistic models, stochastic models. I've been used to deterministic models. Deterministic models were everywhere in science. There were very few examples of probabilistic models in the 1940s. And uh, this just uh, swept me away. And so I ended up doing my PhD with Bill Estes. And for the next 10 years, uh, up to the middle of the 60s, uh, I, or I was uh, working on stimulus sampling theory. We called it in the early days statistical learning theory. I'm glad we didn't keep that term because if you look it up on the internet today, it's part of what's called artificial intelligence, or that, that name at least. Uh, now in 1960, I'm at Stanford University. Uh, I'm a member of four departments, but my main uh, office was at the Institute for Mathematical Studies in the Social Sciences. This was Stanford's idea, the university's idea, of trying to push the social sciences forward uh, by focusing on the potential for mathematical computer theories in the field. There were two directors. One was Ken Arrow, who was a mathematical economist and uh, later a Nobel laureate. And the other was a man named Pat Pat Patrick Supies, who was a logician but very much involved in... Uh, uh, a theory uh, very much, he was a logician, but much involved in the whole notion of the role of theory in science and models in science. And it was a, an amazing time. Uh, it was mainly focused on 
economics and psychology, the other social sciences drifted in in the park, but it, in a sense, was almost a world center. Anyone working anywhere in the world who was involved in this kind of work was there on summer institutes or visits or the like. It was quite amazing. That facility had a wonderful laboratory building in the back where one could uh, conduct experiments with individual subjects, and it was in a, within a stone's throw of the computer center at Stanford, and that was uh, uh, the world we lived in. Everything was done. I mean, all of the experiments that I'm going to report on or that were reported on at the time were all being conducted uh, on computer control from the Stanford Computing Center and from a computer that was owned by the Institute. So uh, that's the story that leads up to uh, the middle of the 60s, 1965. And uh, in that year, I was asked to give a colloquium at uh, Princeton University, a symposium there on cognition and, psych and uh, cognitive processes and the like. And uh, the uh, paper that I gave uh, was a technical report. It was called Mathematical Models of Memory and Learning. And my co-author on that was a young assistant, a young uh, graduate student, Richard Schifrin. I'll say, have a lot to say about Schifrin uh, shortly. Let me simply say that I stopped any involvement in research on memory and cognition in 1975 when I became director of the National Science Foundation. I always intended to come back and do serious work, but uh, I never quite did. Uh, the, the key paper, uh, there were a series of papers in the uh, late 60s uh, describing the Atkinson-Schifrin theory, uh, the, but the key paper was this particular paper, Human Memory, a Proposed System and Its Control Processes. And that distinction, uh, that's a distinction engineers are familiar with between a system and its control processes, but it was somewhat unique at the time in psychology to be thinking in terms of that separation, a system, and then the way that system is controlled. With that, I will now stumble into a description of the theory. But before I do that, I should describe the kinds of data, the kinds of experiments that we're trying to give an explanation for. Uh, it, back in the middle of the 19th century, uh, German scientists and elsewhere in Europe and later in the United States were conducting well-controlled laboratory experiments on the psychology of memory how individuals memorize information and then retrieve that information at a later time, seconds, minutes, days later, or in one case, uh, 70 years later. Uh, as, a, as an example of this very simple experiment, it's what's called free recall. It's often used in courses as an example of an experiment, but it's a standard experiment, the free recall experiment, uh, a subject first sees a long list of unrelated words, one presented after another, and uh, once the list of words is presented, bang, the subject is told, recall all the lists that you've seen. So here is a, an example of an experiment uh, involving 15 items, 
one over here is the first item presented, 15 is the last item. I think they were presented at about a minute, about a second and a half per item, so they're banging along at a pretty quick rate, and suddenly, bang, you're told, reproduce, uh, try to recall in any order, and that's important, free recall, uh, any order, uh, the words. And this is the probability of recalling a particular word, the blue curve, as a function of its position in the serial list. And you can see there is a recency effect on the far side, namely that the items that the person has just heard are recalled with great, uh, uh, with a pretty high probability. And uh, the first few items that are uh, presented are also recalled reasonably well, and you get a U-shaped curve of this sort. And I'm going to get back to that U-shaped curve and the primacy and recency effects a little later. Well, Ben sort of outlined the theory. The general theory is formulated as an information processing system, and as the title of that initial paper suggested, uh, there is a very strong distinction between uh, the system itself and then the control processes that manage the flow of information within the system. There are three uh, memories. Uh, a uh, sensory register, which is a very short-lived uh, uh, store. Uh, uh, life of, uh, the life of items there is in milliseconds, and I'll say more about it later. Uh, the next uh, store is what's called the short-term store. Uh, it's of uh, limited capacity. Its contents are continually changing, during the, it was, are continually changing and nothing is there on a permanent basis. And if you like, think of your conscious experience as part of the contents of short-term stores. So when you're thinking about something consciously, that's taking place in this short-term store. But it's, there are other things too that take place simultaneously. In contrast to the short-term store, the long-term store is virtually limitless and provides a relatively permanent repository of information. We may get into a debate about that, but it's uh, basically a permanent store. Uh, stored in long-term store is information about episodes that occurred over a lifetime, the knowledge needed to understand and speak a language, and all other information available to us from memory. Information from the environment is processed by the various sensory registers and selectively entered into short-term store. Information once entered into short-term store can lead to the retrieval of related information in long-term store. The retrieved information helps interpret what's in currently in short-term store and determines what information should be transferred to long-term store. A strong assumption of the theory is that the storage of information in long-term store must occur via short-term store. Short-term store is the gatekeeper, if you will, for what is stored in long-term store. What drives the whole system is a set of control processes that determine uh, when stimuli are attended to, uh, whether or not they are encoded into short-term store, and uh, if encoded, will be transferred to long-term store. Now, I actually have uh, my, the text of my remarks 
on the uh, at my website. Uh, so uh, I'm going to be a little casual about certain things here. If you want to quote me, quote the, uh, go to my website and read the article that this is based on. But I'm going to skip over uh, a case study that I think is rather important, but let me just mention it very quickly. Uh, this is a case study uh, of a young man with the initials HM, and think of the initials HM as human memory, but that's just by chance. So HM underwent an experimental operation which involved the removal of a structure in the brain called the hippus campus. This was in the year 1953. Uh, the surgeon hoped that it would uh, uh, relieve HM of chronic seizures. It wasn't entirely successful. However, the operation left HM with profound amnesia of a very special kind. When he was introduced to a new person, he could carry on what appeared to be a normal conversation. However, if he saw the same person again an hour or a day later, he would have absolutely no recall of having met and talked with the person before. In conversations, he had no trouble recalling events that occurred prior to the operation in 1953, such as World War II, the Great Depression, the presidency of uh, President Roosevelt. But uh, events that occurred after the operation Vietnam War, Nixon, uh, the demise of the Soviet Union, all of that come, came and went without leaving a trace in long-term store. So for HM, short-term memory continued to work reasonably well, as did the retrieval of information from long store, long-term store placed there. Oh, I forgot a lot. I think you got the point of the story. Uh, so uh, with, with that background, uh, let, let me go to one of the first applications of the general theory, uh, what's called the buffer model. Uh, it was, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll examine the buffer model as it applies to the free recall task described earlier. The model is very simple-minded, uh, but uh, powerful. To this day, the buffer, in, or some variant of it, is a component of virtually every model of the general theory. Uh, for the free recall task, the basic idea is that a subject will set up a buffer and short-term store that can hold and maintain a fixed number of items. As the, at the start of the presentation of a list, the buffer is empty, successive items are entered into the buffer uh, one at a time, uh, until it's filled. Thereafter, as each new item enters, the buffer is replaced. As each new item enters, it replaces one of the items already there. The items that are still in the buffer when the last item is presented are the ones that are immediately recalled, giving rise to the recency effect. The transfer of information from the buffer to long-term store is postulated to be an increasing function of the length of time that an item resided in the buffer. I'm not sure I got that across. Let me give it to you a little differently. Think of short-term store as a little stack that can, say, hold just five books. Take five as the example. 
uh, because that's the kind of number we'll be talking about. Uh, so let's say with each book you have a word on it. The first word's presented. You put a book down in that uh, stack. The second word is presented. You put a book down. The two, put the third book down. You put the fourth book down. You put the fifth book down. When the fifth book is put down, then the next book that comes along, when it comes in, it pops out one of the books already there. When the next book comes in, it pops out one of the books already there. And for the moment, just assume that they pop out in a random order. So when at the end of the last item, you're asked to recall everything you can, you immediately recall the words on the books that are still sitting in the buffer. But the others you recall as a function of the length of time that they have resided in the buffer. So what is that length of time? Well, the first few items presented are entering an empty buffer, so they're going to last there for quite a while. Uh, And once you get beyond five items, then the buffer is filled, and uh, as each new item comes in, uh, an old item pops out. Uh, So that's the model, as simple-minded as that. The, the idea is simply that an item still in the buffer at the time of the test will be recalled immediately. And when an item no longer in the buffer uh, will be called as an exponential function of the time t it resided in the buffer. We're just simply postulating an exponential learning function. t is the time that an item resides in the buffer. The longer it's there, the more... Uh, information has been transmitted and therefore the more likely the subject is to recall the item. And if I go back a slide, that will give a perfect account of that blue curve. Uh, You'll, of course, realize that it won't recall the last five items because many of those have been popped out uh, before the uh, test. And of course, on the left side here, the items that are uh, first presented uh, have a pretty long period in the uh, buffer, and therefore you end up with a curve of this sort. Oh, but it is the case in experiments of this sort that generally one has a subject go through a number of lists of this sort, and in this particular experiment, at the, way, at the very end of the experiment, without any warning, the subject is told, by the way, the, sub- the experiment's over, but remember every word you can from all the lists that you've seen that day. And that's the curve down below. Uh, the curves, the items at the far right are the ones that were you know, immediately recalled that uh, were the last ones presented in each list, but they're hardly remembered at all at the end of the day, while the ones at the beginning of the list still have some uh, memory. Uh, believe me, there are two parameters that you'd fit this with. One is the rate of information that flows as a function of time while an item sits in the buffer. The other is the size of the buffer. Now, the size of the buffer uh, varies depending on how the subject is going to deal with any particular experimental situation. Now, I'm going to refer to theta as the rate of transfer of information and r as the size of the buffer. Then... uh, uh, you can manipulate those, the values of those parameters over a wide range uh, depending on various 
experimental variables like the length of the list, the age of the subject, the nature of the items being presented, and so forth. I want to give you one more example. Uh, this is a, a different uh, experimental design, but it's similar. It's a free recall task, but instead of presenting uh, a set of items and then having you recall everything you can, a set of items are presented, a paired associate items, where you have a number paired with a uh, response. And uh, at the end of the presentation, you're just tested on one item. And this is what the curve looks like uh, for as you vary lift's length. And you'll note that the curve has a little S shape on the left-hand side. By the way, I'm now reversing the last item. The first item presented are on the left side of this graph. I'm sorry to do that to you. But you'll see there's a little S-shaped curve there. And depending on the nature of the variables, you can get quite a dramatic S-shaped curve if you want. And uh, as in the next slide gives you the fact that you can predict this is of the subject rating confidence, uh, the confidence of their items. I hope that didn't go too fast for you. In any event, that's the buffer model. You can see how simple it is, but uh, my claim is that it accounts for a vast amount of information. R, the size of the buffer, is what sometimes is called the magic number in psychology because R is 7 plus or minus 2. In this experiment, you can see that with a list of five items up in the corner, uh, you're almost perfect. So if the buffer size is five, and then you have your parameters, your parameter R for predicting uh, the effect of residing in the buffer. Uh, in any event, uh, I'll go on. I hope I caught, caught your attention with that. I'm now going to make a rather sweeping claim the general theory with the buffer model in various configurations could explain most of the data on memory and learning collected prior to the year 1968. To make this claim more plausible, note that we regard an earlier theoretical development, what I refer to as Bill Estes stimulus sampling theory, as a special case of the general theory and a necessary prerequisite to our work. You'll note that I don't use the term Atkinson and Schifrin. I use the term general theory. That was the term we used in our paper. And anyone who does theoretical work, I advise you not to put your name on the theory. Find another name. Uh, after publication of the 1968 paper, a number of studies were reported that claimed to disprove, disprove the general theory. The problem was that some critics viewed the buffer model as a statement of the general theory rather than a special case. Responding to the claims usually required a more sophisticated control process. For example, a control process that employed a more complex encoding scheme or a control process that allowed subjects' attention to selectively focus on more important sensory information. The subject can always modify the control process 
and may do so even given minor changes in the experimental procedure. And some control processes that initially require a subject's attention can become automated if frequently used. However, the most significant finding from our early research was the variety of ways short-term store can be deployed. It's a memory of limited capacity, but it's key to how the system operates. It determines what information is transferred to long-term store. At any time, it can decouple the memory system from distractions of the outside world. Moreover, because information can be maintained in short-term store on a temporary basis, it, is often, it often serves as a primary memory. As another example, consider the following uh, not uncommon experience. You're driving to your office for an important meeting. During the drive, your mind is focused on the upcoming meeting. As you arrive at the office, you suddenly realize that you have no memory of the drive itself. Your short-term store was simultaneously engaged in two tasks, tasks sim- subconsciously monitoring your driving and to alert you to any untold events and at a conscious level planning for the meeting. In the 1968 paper, we introduced the word working memory because, and I think we were the first to use that term in any description of the memory system, We use the term working memory because short-term store is where the memory system works its magic. It can create new memories, and uh, it can uh, combine these uh, new memories with others already in long-term store. For example, the arrival of a close friend will immediately retrieve a strong memory trace with information about her name and age and family history that has been added to the primary uh, memory trace over repeated exposures. In addition, there may be other traces that have not been linked to the primary uh, trace. Only with an extended search can they be retrieved. Contrast this example with an individual you met once uh, uh, some time ago You may have several memory traces of her that have never been linked together. When meeting her again, you may retrieve a memory trace that causes you to immediately recognize her, but only later, possibly in the middle of the night, retrieve another trace that lets you recall her name and where you met her. The last 50 years have witnessed an extraordinary period of experimental uh, research on memory and cognition, a wide array of, array of phenomena, phenomena have been discovered using very clever new types of experiments. In order to explain these developments in terms of the general theory, it's been necessary to elaborate, elaborate components of the memory system. Research findings on perception and visual memory require a more complex sensory register. The sensory register played a minor role in the beginning. Indeed, some of the early models did not even include it. Now the visual sensor register in particular plays a key role in many applications. The encoding process that produces a memory trace also had to be elaborated. The immediate sensory input in an event had to be supplemented 
by related information brought to mind by the event. The way an event is encoded beyond infancy depends on information accumulated over a lifetime. Information about the context in which an event occurred proved to be more important than initially expected. Not just context as defined by the physical surround, but uh, mood and uh, but but uh, factors like uh, mood and motivation. Critical to all of these development has been the search and retrieval process and learn long-term store. In the early models, as you might realize from the discussion of the uh, buffer model, we used a simple exponential learning function <coughs> to approximate the search and retrieval process. It uh, was fine for some very simple experiments, but as the experiments uh, increased in range and complexity, it was soon evident they, that a more complex, more com- competent setup was required. For example, research demonstrated that the sheer act of retrieving an event can change our memory for that event. So began an odyssey that continued to this day. A series of models have been developed, each more robust than the last. The basic idea of these uh, search and retrieval models was actually formulated in our 1965 paper, this Princeton paper. Uh, The idea is that the subject assembles a retrieval probe, a word I've not used before. Uh, The subject assembles a retrieval probe in short-term store, and via a search attempts to match the probe to a memory trace in long-term store. Memory traces are retrieved based on the goodness of fit, this is a statistical concept, on the goodness of fit between the trace and the uh, uh, probe. So the, uh, the item that's retrieved is the one that provides the best fit between the memory trace and the actual retrieval probe. I don't know if I've made that clear. I hope I have. And uh, the determination of that is a, a Bayesian decision. Every modern theory has to have a Bayesian uh, system in it, and that's our Bayesian system. The discovery of several phenomena would not have occurred except that they were predicted a priori by the model. As an aside, I might remark that the Freudian concept of repressed memories would be explained as an inability of the subject to generate an appropriate retrieval probe. So the idea of psychoanalysis is indeed, and when you read some of Freud's early cases, you'll find that a lot of attention is spent trying to find a retrieval probe that will actually uh, identify one of these hidden memories one of these repressed memories. Recent developments, and this I think, uh, I've I've forgotten the, I wish I had the data on it, I think it's 2016. Recent developments of the general theory are illustrated by a model called SARC, Storage and Retrieving Knowledge and Events. The model is designed to explain the co-evolution of knowledge and event memories. The essential idea is that knowledge in long-term store is created by the gradual accrual of individual events, event memories, whereas the encoding of an event 
is affected by knowledge already in long-term store. These interdependent processes create a feedback loop in which knowledge and event memories grow in concert over a lifetime. The model, in my view, is a brilliant application of the general theory and a major scientific achievement. And you can see that that's a, a, another article like our original article. It's 88 pages. And Angela Nelson was a graduate student of Richard Schifrin's, and that's uh, a report of her work with Richard. And uh, Angela, are you here today? Oh, you're here today. Stand up. And Angela. Angela is actually a member of uh, UCSD faculty, but I'm very proud of the fact that she's here. Uh, the, uh, the experiment that they report related to this uh, model, this particular model of the general theory, was quite remarkable. Uh, it's on <coughs> involves learning a collection of Chinese characters over a three-week period. Each subject was trained for over over 12,000 study test trials in order to track the accuracy and latency of responses over the course of the experiment. As the memory trace, the features of the memory trace, and you can see there are, what, 160 content features and 240 context features and then there are some high-level features. I'm not going to describe these in detail. If you want, uh, go over and see uh, Angela after the talk. Why have I shown you this? Just simply to indicate how complex a theory can get. And when you get into something like this, the, even the, it's going to require huge, large-scale simulations to understand the model and to interpret the data. Uh, I I think it's quite remarkable where we're at. Uh, Clearly, though, we're not in a position where we could formulate models for a substantial body of knowledge, like, for example, Euclidean geometry. I've always loved Euclidean geometry, such a beautiful and well-organized subject matter, but uh, I would argue that's probably too complex for anyone to take on. But there's one realistic probability at this time, and that's the acquisition of initial reading skills by young children. Uh, While I was at Stanford, uh, a colleague and I uh, had considerable experience uh, with computer-based systems. I was responsible for a computer-based system for teaching reading, and he was responsible for the computer system uh, teaching initial mathematics. This was grades K through three. This is one of the terminals that uh, we had running at the time. The idea that we actually had over 100 terminals running in New York City at one moment in time. Uh, IBM had several hundred running on what was called the IBM 1600 system, which we designed at Stanford, and then we ran a number of terminals directly from Stanford on or PD-1 computer. The point is, when I, after reading uh, Angela's paper four or five times, and believe me, you have to read it four or five times, each time you'll discover something new. Uh, After reading it, I suddenly realized that uh, 
her tasks were not that different than the kind of tasks that we used. <clears throat> and I think it's very clear that there's a real possibility that one could uh, define a suitable memory trace uh, 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 for a reading program. That is, from a linguistic viewpoint, I think it would be reasonable to actually define such a memory trace. And if one was successful <coughs> modeling the acquisition of reading skills by young children, it would be just a great accomplishment. And I'm hoping that something like that can be done uh, in not too distant future. Uh, I'll end with a couple of remarks. Uh, I wish we knew more about the neural circuitry of a memory trace. Uh, if the neuroscientists gave us a better input on just what that might be like, uh, it would provide real constraints and guide rails for future models. I also would, I'm also hopeful that developments in artificial intelligence will identify some heuristics or all algorithms humans use in problem solving that have escaped our attention. I would like to note that John McCarthy, <coughs> the founder of artificial intelligence, was one of my close colleagues at Stanford. Uh, his research group and my research group both shared the PDP-1 computer. It was the, we had the first transistorized computer from, uh, uh, from that corporation uh, on the West Coast. It was a fabulous machine at the time. And uh, most of his early work on uh, artificial intelligence was done on the PDP-1, and our experimental work and theoretical work was also done on that machine. By now, you realize that I'm very much in love with short-term store. Everything that happens revolves around her. Yet another observation about short-term store is based on my own metacognition. During certain stages of sleep, Short-term store will turn to problems that have arisen during the day. She will search deep into long-term store for memory traces that contain information possibly relevant to the problem. If several memory traces are identified, they can be mixed together and analyzed. Analyses of this sort may reveal information that was not evident when analyzed individually. Eureka, something new. An analogy, you have a blue towel and a gold towel. You place them in a washing machine and turn the switch, and out comes a green towel. If uh, reification occurs, short-term store can create a new memory trace, a trace formed in the absence of external stimulation. The difference between a created memory trace versus an acquired memory trace reflects the absence or presence of certain external stimulation. This, from my view, is an example of short-term stores' creative capabilities, the ability to formulate a theory about the outside world. It's not, in my remarks, it's not been possible to recognize the many people who have contributed, contributed to the development of the theory. Of course, you know that I ceased work in on the theory in 1975 when I went to NSF. And uh, uh, so everything has been done since there. Since then, Rich Schifrin and his many students and 
postdoctoral fellows have been key to everything that's happened. He's had a remarkable scientific career and uh, has received and has received every honor the field has to offer. Uh, just a few years ago, he was visiting here, and someone brought out that flag. Uh, uh, he's, uh, uh, I would like to say that in addition to being a collaborator, he's been a great friend. Finally, uh, let me note that I recently reviewed the manuscript of a book entitled Human Memory, colon, The General Theory and Its Various Models, to be published by Cambridge University Press. The author is uh, Ken Melberg, a professor at the University of South Florida and a former postdoctoral fellow of Rick Schifrin's. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.